This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcode.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Short Code Podcast. You may be expecting to hear the voice of Dave Etler here, but you're not hearing Dave Etler. My name is Jason T. Lewis, the director of the Writing Humanities Program here at the Carver College of Medicine. And today we are joined by some very special people. We've got Chris. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much. Teneray. Hey. We got Rob. How's it going? Gabe. Hey there. And our guest today is the one and only Sarah Smarsh, who is the author of the book Heartland. And uh, so we're, today we're going to kind of just have a conversation and uh, and talk about, I guess, we've read a section of the book, uh, and that can be sort of the basis for our conversation. But I think these guys will be interested in, in sort of branching off and talking more about it healthcare and and how it relates to the book itself uh i guess my first question just so that everybody out there in podcast land can know a little bit about you and your book could you just kind of introduce yourself and give a short synopsis for us sure yeah so um i grew up on a farm uh 30 miles west of wichita i'm a fifth generation kansas farm kid grew up raising wheat and cattle and i'm now a professional journalist and have been for almost 20 years and so I write about socioeconomic class um, because I've lived uh, firsthand um, these sorts of divides that we've constructed for ourselves um, through our economic structure, which is a a, a timely theme. Um, But I was writing this book about that upbringing and that place in class uh, many years before the current political moment. And and it frequently dovetails with health and and wellness and and just the... um, the sanctity of the, of the body, which often is threatened by the dangers of manual labor and, and lack of access to health care. Yeah. yeah, I I was really, as I was reading, very interested. I think I think the thing that struck me is you really make a point of showing that the the barriers that are there for people who in our consciousness we might not consider to have those kinds of barriers to health care and that kind of thing. Uh, I, that was that was just really interesting to me. I, I grew up in a rural area as well, and uh, and as I said before we started the podcast, I've kind of lived through very similar situations, which I never thought of as you know having to do with poverty or access or those kinds of things. But as you cast it here in the book, it, it makes a lot of sense. So I, I really fantastic work. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah. So let's turn it over to the panel. You guys have read. You guys have questions. I know Rob had been marginating some comments, some <laughs> some questions. So what do we have? So one of the things that struck me, um, I also grew up in a in a rural community here in Iowa, mm-hmm. and my mom's mm-hmm. a public school teacher. And one one of the things that she's really like, talked about, especially like over the last decade, is that kids that don't have a safe place to go at home can't you can't expect them to come to school ready to learn mm. and like multiple things that came up um in in the the chapter that we sampled uh whether it's like food insecurity or uh violence in the home um or just living in a lot of different uh places 
uh, really, really struck me and made me think about uh, some of my some of my mom's students. And I know that this is something that's present in a lot of communities. And I mean, it's going to affect their education, but of course, it's going to affect their health as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and really, the your health is your foremost um, requisite before you can learn, right? Just for the ability to focus in class with a full belly of food, or even just, um, you know, I've, I've written in essays as a journalist about um, lack of access to dental care specifically. And then I have memories of sitting in classrooms with my tooth aching and just uh, unable to focus for sheer pain. And, um, and that's very much a, a class dividing line in terms of a student's experience in those classrooms, certainly, and, and the rural experience you had growing up and that you're mother can attest to as a teacher also um, is compounded by a a particular geographic experience that's sometimes isolated from um, the type of care that requires resources like gas money to access so yeah I think what's interesting to me is like the the contrast between people who write about this and know about it firsthand and sort of the policymakers who represent us and Mm. you know the the policymakers who have control of the house and senate generally want to roll back policies that would help people of lower socioeconomic status. So I just kind of wonder, um, do you have other sort of tools that you use to try to change these people's minds when it comes to policies that they're suggesting? Mm-hmm. Or are you s- sort of in our boat where you you can be upset, but there isn't a whole lot you can do? I guess you write. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, that's such a good question. And I actually just a few weeks ago um, spoke at the um, Senate Democrats hold an annual event called the Rural Summit. And I wasn't talking specifically to health, but the um, uh, because the the closure of of rural hospitals is such a timely um, uh, crisis that that was at the fore at at this summit. But um, so I have been thinking some about, okay, how how can I um, actually affect change? And and I do, you know, this might sound cliche and silly, but I do believe in the power of story. And and it's one of the reasons I'm so stoked about the Examine Life conference is that intersection of um, what art can do and deliver and this this realm of, of health and wellness and medicine. Um, is where I think there is a sweet spot where some magic can happen and people's, um, you know, um, wonky way of discussing these very human intimate um, experiences that that is the healthcare crisis ultimately is experienced on the ground by bodies and human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do find that as a journalist, if I'm writing in a statistics heavy way, Um, which is sort of like the journalism parallel of a wonky politician, that yes, it might be informing my readers, but it it does not strike their heart and it does not change their minds about anything. Um, But to um, rather than talking about the millions who X, Y, Z, if we can tell the story in a true way of the one person um, who experiences something uh, in a um, in a in in graphic art, artistically rendered detail, um, I do find that people can shift. Mm-hmm. Okay. Message of I, hope. So, <laughs> yes. I guess going off of that, um, on the other side of the divide from the politicians, how are you received uh, back in Kansas, I guess? Cause as someone mm-hmm. who's, you know, gotten a good education, been able to move out to the East Coast, um, are you able to kind of have any kind any dialogue of change uh, mm-hmm. in your home community? Mm-hmm. Well, first, let me say, while I did live in New York for a few years, I have I, I live in Kansas now, oh. and I've lived there most of my life. Um, but that but that is a an, a 
an assumption that would be natural to make because my industry is centered in New York and, and the economic tides of our country are such that it does require a person from where I'm from to quote unquote get out to do the things that I meant to do professionally. And, um, and so I ha have made a very pointed decision of, of keeping myself planted in the place that I write. But, um, but it's not easy. And as far as the, the reception of the book and my work or where I come from, um, you know, I, I have found that um, people all over, whether they're in New York or Kansas or Iowa or, um, you know, this the quote unquote urban rural divide or the coast versus no coast is like I find on my book tour and in talking to my readers on social media and so on that ultimately we're far less different than we claim and that my, and than my own news media purports in headlines. And so, you know, I, I get the same questions and warm responses in Kansas as I do in New York, um, whether that is because I attempt to, in some ways, kind of transcend politics to talk about things beyond labels in just a very human way. I don't know, perhaps. Um, but uh, but yeah, people people in Kansas are, I think, in part just excited that you know it's a it's a place it's it's a very unglamorous place to hail from and to have um, a journalistic reports or a memoir even just validate the the literal you know places and locations and landscape that um, so rarely is seen in it with any integrity in in literature or popular culture. I think is um, is really speaking to people. As I was reading through, um, you talked a lot about sort of the generational aspect of how your family encountered healthcare, uh, and you talked a lot about uh, access and how that's changed. And how, I guess, from your point of view, how has healthcare really changed in say the last thirty to forty years mm -hmm. as it as it relates to folks who live in a rural population? Mm -hmm. So one of the kind of conceits of my book is that um, I was born in 1980. So really, and, and there are so many statistics, whether it's in health or, or other spheres, that if you look at the, the moment that we sh made a sharp turn as a country toward various disasters and um, inequalities that are vexing us today, that sharp turn happened in 1980. And there, of course, was a, a political, a, a presidential election that year. Um, and I'm sure that that has more than a little to do with it. But but also that decade, just regardless of the Reagan administration and era, was the 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 moment that decades long trends of um, economic demise in rural areas, what we call rural flight, harkened back to really the Industrial Revolution. So it was also it was just sort of a perfect storm of um, nearly a century of um, rural communities dwindling, coming to a head in the, the farm crisis, as we called it when I was a child in the 80s. Um, farms around us were underwater, and uh, we held on to ours until I was in college. Uh, 1999 is the year we sold our farm, uh, and even that was beating the odds. Um, and so how this relates to um, the, the health question is that um, that decade, that that moment of economic peril and um, that kind of turning point that I was just discussing um, manifested in in the realm of health and access to health care in that, um, it, you know, it was really the moment when a, a culture of like the, the country doctor and the Main Street um, 
doctor's office that, um, you know, like my carpenter dad could go just like pay cash for some cut for like a vaccination or something. Um, vaccination, not a good example, I guess, but just for some sort of general health care. Um, that that moment was ceasing to exist in tandem with my childhood because of various um, uh, regulations, deregulations, forces of uh, corporate America. And um, so my dad, who was the sixth of, um, he was the sixth child on a, a farm in, in rural Kansas. Um, he was the first one out of the six, and the only one out of the six to be born in a hospital rather than be delivered in their farmhouse. So that moment was shifting in some ways with my dad's generation. And then by the time I came along, I was born in a hospital, but I was delivered by an, an old-fashioned country doctor who went to Wichita to deliver me, but he still kept um, an office on Main Street in small-town Kansas. And we could still access his services even though we didn't have health insurance. Literally, by the time I was a teenager, so like fast forward to the next decade, the 90s, as an uninsured kid, I just didn't get health care. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's... A lot of these things that um, uh, a lot of these uh, healthcare conundrums that we face right, face right now were um, many decades in the making. But on the other hand, just if you think about um, history and human development in a deeper way, it has been a remarkably quick shift that just within my lifetime of 38 years, things would transform that severely. Yeah. Yeah. I. I grew up in West Virginia and uh, I think was witness to a lot of that same struggle. I mean, and I guess a follow-up question that I would have is, well, and you, and you, and you make this point in the book, uh, what, what might've been just, you know, bangs and scrapes, broken mm. bones, et cetera, et cetera, that folks needed to get to the doctor for and, they, and maybe they couldn't afford it has now escalated into some very serious health crises. Mm-hmm. And how do you see that transition having come about? Well, I think that that, so I was sort of beginning from a framework of discussing access to care when I was answering your previous question. And then, and then the result of that dwindling access or absence of access to healthcare is that what used to be preventable is now manifest or what used to be um, survivable is now deadly. Um, and so when you are in the context, particularly of what I'm talking about, the a, a rural working poor experience is often dangerous manual labor, um, injuries um, befall people. Um, there is uh, geographic isolation to contend with when you're sick. Um, even just, you know, if we look at something like domestic violence as a health issue, um, there's no neighbor to help a, a woman in distress and, and there's no proximity to the police department. So all, all of the, this... Um, to, to live a, a, a life in which um, work is dangerous, one, um, uh, care is hard to come by, two, and you have, um, for economic reasons, and you have geographic iso- isolation or lack of proximity on top of that, it is a keenly danger- physically dangerous um, way to live. And so, you know, if we think about things like... Um, well, the, the, the health issues that we, uh, that we associate with poverty and that do have some correlation, um, you know, I would caution to say not, not because they are um, the individual failures of, of the members of that class, but there are cultural and societal forces at work that mean that um, um, 
addiction to smoking. Cigarettes is more prevalent in what we call the lower economic classes. So that, uh, of course, has um, health repercussions. And where someone who had what they used to call emphysema when I was a child in the 1980s would have been able to go to that doctor on Main Street in Andale, Kansas, who delivered me, Dr. Steck. Um, Now, um, you know, maybe the Affordable Care Act will allow her to get to a hospital in Wichita, um, but um, perhaps in a state like mine where Medicaid wasn't expanded, um, not so much. And so that um, what might have received um, some sort of um, respiratory treatment goes untreated and uh, years are shaved off of her life for that. I think it's easy to read about issues like uh, poverty and like the poverty cycle um, and the dwindling rural population. It's easy to read about some of these uh, issues and just get get kind of a sense of hopelessness. Mm. Um, I'm kind of wondering if you feel it that way. Are you kind of witnessing uh, this as it's going by or do you actually feel hopeful that mm. some of these things can actually change for the better? I love that question because part of what, part of the reason I think it's important that people who have some ownership of a story firsthand or part of the discussion of, of telling that story is that, um, you know, I think that sometimes when my well-meaning co- journalism colleagues who are from much more privileged backgrounds or places endeavor to tell the story of, let's say, the opioid crisis and by way of West Virginia or whatever, it um, it does come across sometimes as what they call poverty porn. And, you know, even if that's not the intention, it is a, an emphasis on like, the, the misery of the situation. And, and maybe that is because reporting on the problem is essential to receive the attention that is required to fix the problem. However, I do think it is kind of dehumanizing to always talk about the, these places that I know as complicated, often joyous and filled with humor and resilience places um, just in terms of um, their, um, their struggles. And so, so do I see hope? Yes. Um, you know, I don't have the answers of how to, to fix it, certainly, but I do know that um, in the context of rural America, there are a lot of people who, like me, are kind of like returning to the places that they were like highly encouraged to leave. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is just the economic imperative that like, even if you're like a college educated 20 something today, cities are no longer affordable. Mm-hmm. So there was a time when it was like, you go to the city for like to, you know, for the economic opportunity of the industrial revolution at the turn of that century. Now it's almost like cities have become a, a rarefied space and a highly gentrified one where um, wealth is required to live somewhere that is desirable for the mm-hmm. culture that that city is celebrated for. And so people are going to places like, you know, affordable Midwestern cities or even rural areas and being like, we're just going to make the thing that we want here Mm -hmm. in this place where you can like buy all of Main Street for a song. (laughs) And so I think it's kind of a sad reason for that tide turning. But I do feel of the very early um, kind of um, sense of a a zeitgeist in that direction. And so, um, you know, in places like Kansas, where I'm from, there are um, economic incentives for um, for taking jobs in rural areas. So I believe the state of Kansas will will forgive or, or pay off essentially someone's federal student loans mm-hmm. if they live in a rural county. Um, you know, I think that policies like that are going to be really important um, to, and you know, I think there's some temptation maybe for someone who's never lived in a rural place and might think, well, why the hell does it matter? 
Um, and why would someone want to live there? And if they do, then why should we as a community be caring for them? As someone who comes from an agricultural background, what I say to those people is, do you want to eat? Um, do you want to, um, there, are, or, there, or there are all sorts of aspects of our um, economy that are deeply tied to rural land. And if we're not protecting it from an environmental perspective, from an economic perspective, from a human perspective, um, then people in cities will suffer for it too. And so in regards to like the hope in the healthcare aspect of things, um, there's this idea that was being reported on when I was living in Omaha of uh, concierge doctors, uh, where you basically pay a certain monthly fee and someone will come visit you kind of like how you described in the book as a, mm. um, an old time doctor who will make the house visits, yeah. ca- take care of your primary care needs. How do you think that that kind of service um, would be received? I mean, I think that it would that absolutely speaks to the culture of rural America to me and it and it potentially solves some of the the class conundrum of receiving health care because this is this is something that is is a little bit hard to articulate and it's and it's not you can't put it in economic terms when we talk about health care. But there but there is a just a, a cultural aversion to, you know, getting in the car, driving to the doctor, seeking care. And I and I think Part of that is because it's it's so expensive um, for people who are cash strapped. But another part of that is just to enter the highly professional space of a hospital where the language is essentially like a form of English that is not native to me. You know, I tell people I speak two kinds of English, country and fancy. And I learned <laughs> fancy at school, and that's mostly what I'm using here today. But um, for someone to... Um, you know, even like have a conversation with a doctor about what ails them can feel it, it could like um, not to use like a, a liberal buzzword of the moment, but could trigger someone's sense of being shamed by a society that refers to them as ignorant or uneducated. You know what I mean? And so I feel like um, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but it is what it is. And I have seen it firsthand. And if someone were coming to them in their own space for that health care, I think that it would maybe even improve the conversation and their ability to just be comfortable and um, receive some healing. I think that's it's interesting to me that that says a lot about agency as well. Um, I I've been involved in education discussion quite a bit and you know even even in a college town like Iowa City we have a pretty significant gap between the middle class and and the folks who aren't and a mm. really uh, profound misunderstanding or lack of understanding of of that lower lower class group mm-hmm. you know they it t- often I'm, I'm encountered that question like well why don't they just mm-hmm blank 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 yeah and it's to me a lot of it has to do with like straight up plato's analogy of the cave like they (laughs) they don't have the agency Mm -hmm. to go to these places that are outside of their cave totally and interact Mm -hmm. and so i i you know something like home health care yeah uh is is really important actually i have a friend who she she was a journalist she lived in dc she moved back to rural West Virginia and now works as a home health care worker. Really? How yeah. cool. Yeah. So so I think it's really important. I love the idea of being able to come back to the place where you where you came from. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I, I moved out of West Virginia to New York City and mm-hmm. then decided, oh, I, 
I want to go back home. Mm. And at the time, my wife and I had a small child, and mm. there was such a lack of the care that we needed mm. as two working parents. Right. Uh, it, it, just the infrastructure of, of the place was not nearly as developed as, right. a, as it needed to be. And ultimately we just recognized that the opportunities, I was working for the newspaper that I delivered as a 12 year old, mm. you know, uh, and, and not that there was anything wrong with that. It was a really fun job, but it was ha for half the money that I'd made before. And, right. There was literally no opportunity for advancement. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, and and talking about things like the opioid crisis and that sort of thing, and I, poverty porn is a very interesting <laughs> phrase. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I, you know, there is a sort of like car wreck, mm -hmm. gawking yes. sort yeah. of aspect to it. Um, there are places where that I knew when I was growing up that now are are the you know center point for really horrible mm -hmm. uh really horrible addiction crises and it it makes it, it just it just makes me feel i guess as gabe was saying a little there's a little sense of of hopelessness but you know sometimes you hear stories and you see things start to work mm -hmm. i guess for me like that's um that's it's an interesting statement or question or whatever it is <laughs> um, sometimes they're both yeah you had you, you made it so in the book let me see if i can grab it right here um you made this you made this very interesting uh talk you were talking about transmuting as as opposed to transmitting mm -hmm. and i wondered if you would talk a little bit about how that idea and how you sort of put it into, into context in the book. Mm. Well, in that passage, I am talking about what I would essentially boil down to family behavioral cycles. And, I'm, you know, I come from a family that, like many, has dealt with generations of violence, um, uh, teen pregnancy, um, not finishing high school, as far as, like, specifically uh, unto health, um, certainly a lot of addictions, substance um, abuse. And I was very aware of those cycles as a, a precocious child, even though I didn't necessarily have the language to articulate what it all meant. I knew that I wanted to do something different. And it did seem, you know, it's striking me right now because I'm thinking, I was referring to, I'm, I was hoping to essentially be the last one in the in those lines of cycles. And so that's why I say I'm going to transmute this these influences rather than transmit them onto a next generation or heck even to just the people around me in a form of anger or violence or negative energy and um you know in health terms we might think about that in as just almost um the way a virus works, you know. Um uh Men who I was fortunate to have a gentle and loving father and grandfather, but a lot of a lot of um, people in my family weren't so fortunate. Um, and male violence, let's say, as I do consider a public health crisis, whether it's in the form of mass shootings or domestic violence, and um, men who perpetrate those crimes um, didn't just like <laughs> develop those tendencies in a vacuum. They overwhelmingly were abused themselves, and so. Um, 
you know, I think that um, the way that um, that there are some real uh, parallels in the way that in that behavior works and the way that um, just the 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 physical cell works, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, my, my goal was to, like I said, be basically, you know, to put in scientific terms, like we, we neither create nor destroy energy. We only change its form. Right. And so, um, I wanted to be the one, try to be the one who took that, all of those influences and channeled it into something other than a repetition of negative cycles. And, and what, um, became of that, I suppose, is this book. Right. Right. That's great. Speaking of the book, this is your first book, right? Mm -hmm. um, as a fan of Anthony Bourdain, he had a quote that I think about quite often. Basically, he said, for people who, for he was talking about making a documentary, but I think it's true for writing in any creative endeavor. He said, people who think that they're creating something that's worth reading or viewing are really like super, he said it endearingly, but super like neurotic, right? Mm. You, you think society, you think this is worth, worth something to society, right? Yeah. And I'm kind of wondering... Obviously, you had some writing experience before that, but how much confidence does it take to mm. sort of sit down and decide I'm going to write a book and yeah, publish it? What's I'm it's kind of a process question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know, absolutely, confidence is essential, and I think, and I am a fan of of Bourdain's, and I think he was um, a true creator. Um, the neuroticism that he referred to for me maybe narcissism was the word he actually used, okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sim <laughs> similar i guess i think um you know that's an interesting question because i do yeah for sure there is a, a confidence that is required that would maybe like be um that would have to be so strong as to counter a, a cultural tide of messages that will tell any child or person that your own voice in the end does, doesn't really hold much power mm -hmm. or matter. Mm -hmm. And that those messages are, are all the more intense if you are from a historically disadvantaged group. Um, and so, yeah, I think there was I, a real, um, I mean, I knew even as a little kid that I intended to write this book and, and I would call it, um, you know, when I was like a teenager and then a college student, a lot of the passages in this book were written when I was a senior in college 16 years ago and it took wow. me that long to um, get an agent to believe in a book that was about class, mm -hmm. which is something that we're only now talking about as a country. Um, and so I look back now and I think like, who the hell did I think I was? You know what I mean? Because I had no, <laughs> it's such an improbable thing for me to hope to be coming from a family of manual laborers. And you know, I was the first person from my farmhouse to graduate from high school, let alone college. And, um, so yeah, there was a, a bravado in that that I think was um, essential because mm -hmm. if it hadn't existed, then I, I would have listened to the many messages from society that said I didn't have a story worth telling. So I think, you know, I would push back necessarily against the, the idea that all writers have to be narcissists. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, in fact, I think that probably a lot of writers had narcissists for parents um, and that, that requires a hypervigilance and a sensitivity and an empathy and an over-awareness of other people's feelings to survive. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that, um, and, and I encourage that bravado in my, when I, when I teach writing, I think that like half of the battle is just allowing someone to believe that their story matters. So I have a follow up. I'm kind of a process nerd, so mm -hmm. I could do this all day, but yeah. when it comes to your process, are you writing every day or are you sort of writing when your pen is hot or how does mm -hmm. that work? 
You know, since um, since I turned this book in, I did the final edits um, basically last spring. I have been writing journalism, maybe like a, an essay a month, um, but I'm not in any kind of like daily writing craft. When I was engaged in the book process, it, I, I'm a, I tend to be a morning writer and um, and I have kind of my rhythms about that. Um, but uh, right now, um, I am kind of like stepping out from behind the computer and talking in public speaking engagements like today in Iowa City or on podcasts like this. And um, it's a, a pleasant respite from what is a, ultimately a solitary experience to get out and talk to human beings. Mm-hmm. Some writers like people, and I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah. People people see the, the back end of the artistic process and think like, oh, wow, they get all this attention. It's, yeah. it's awesome. But... <laughs> The majority of the artistic process is like sitting alone in a room, oh, just yeah. like second guessing yourself. Oh <laughs> yeah, yep. And for a long time, probably if a book is involved. Yeah, it took me eight years to finish my first mm. novel. Yeah, um, and actually, as I was reading this, I, I was thinking like, so we've talked about sort of Kansas and how the the state or your your community might react. Mm. But how does how did your family feel mm. about? sort of telling the stories. Yeah. Well, so I got my first research grant to dig up my family history in 2002. I was a senior in college. And um, that was also, so that was also the year that I graduated into the professional fray as a journalist. So, um, so really that process developed in tandem and I would, um, I would kind of put on my uh, journalist cap to basically formally interview my family members, which is a very awkward thing to do. Mm. But I found that um, I'm from a rural German Catholic Midwestern stoic culture that is not given to like talking about themselves or reflecting. It's not like the middle urban middle class therapist office experience where people are walking around pondering why Mm -hmm. and um, or encouraged to do so. And, and so I found that if I kind of formalized these conversations to piece together the family history by saying, this is my work, they are people who respect work. And they're like, if this is what, this is your job and somebody's paying you to do this crap, all right, we can sit down and talk. And um, and so I say that because all along the way, I was seeking, my immediate family specifically is are the stories that I sought and um, and I was asking for their blessing every step of the way. And um, trying to, you know, the book is called a memoir, but it's really in many way, in many places, a reconstruction of events at which I wasn't even present or born yet. And that is based on their own subjective memories, but also uh, archival research I did to piece together the facts that existed. And um, and so maybe for that reason, now that the book comes out and they all didn't chose not to read it while it was in process, so they read it for the first time when the rest of the world did. Um, my grandma, my dad, my brother, and the the kind of um, m- maternal family that I talk about in the book, they're all very proud of it and um, feel like I got something right. And I, I tell everybody that that's like the best review I could get because I do th- take the um, responsibility of using someone's name and story very seriously. And I think it is kind of like a sacred thing. Someone's... Um, uh, the idea of someone's story, even though a character in a book is ultimately never going to encapsulate the whole, um, you know, I wanted them to feel like I got it right, and um, and they're all pretty excited about it. So that's great. I made the mistake of writing fiction and realizing <laughs> that it was only it was a fictional scenarios 
based yeah. on factual yeah, yeah. experiences. Right. <laughs> and my family was not as pleased. Less pleased. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, if I could just ask. So one thing that really struck me with the book was the relationship between you and your mother. Mm. And we only read one chapter, so I wasn't able to get like a, like a, a really good understanding of it. But yeah. it just seemed like there was just this kind of like weird, you know, like tension that was there mm-hmm. between you and your mother and yeah. but then i also remember about the the story you told about um her lifting was it a dresser mm-hmm. off of you and then yes. that like that uh, that caused her stitches to tear mm-hmm. as well and i was like it, it just seemed like it was such like um i don't know there's something that was just very like special and unique about the relationship you guys had i was wondering mm-hmm. if you could talk more about maybe like how that relationship has changed like to present day or Mm -hmm. like how it was back then yeah sure well one of the um my hopes for this book is that it puts a spotlight on female members of the working class that often is represented by you know the what the appalachian coal miner who is male and usually white or um you know men in tool belts are going into factories um, women I know work in factories and do all of those same things too, but they um, very rarely are part of the conversation when we talk about the working class. And um, and so, uh, you know, my I think my mom and her mother are probably arguably the quote-unquote main characters of the book outside myself. And their experiences are in some ways the same as the male experience of working poverty, but in some ways um, they're very unique to their gender. And one very specific reason for that is the female body's potential um, as a vessel for childbearing. And um, and that is just a, a biological fact that, that, also, that turns out to have um, economic and um, cultural outcomes about a female experience in that place. So, so for my mother, she was 17 when she got pregnant with me. And, um, in that scene that you were referencing, she has then, I'm like four years old and she has a newborn son and she's in this, um, rural environment. My dad, you know, this is, uh, like almost a decade before the family medical leave act was passed. And so, um, whatever low paying job that she had when she had to go off and have her baby, she just lost. And there was no legal protection for that. That meant that then my carpenter farmer dad had to take extra jobs to pay now for the extra mouth to feed and so he's out working more she has even less support it's just like this perfect storm for a disaster like that scene that you're referencing which is um i climbed up as a four-year-old climbed up a dresser and it fell on top of me and she had just narrowly survived a severe hemorrhage in in labor with my infant brother and was alone in a house in rural Kansas and probably should have still been in a hospital. And my dad was back to work because he had to be because we had to eat. And um, and so, you know, she physically managed to lift that off of me and um, and in the process tore her her um, stitches from that labor. And and, you know, when she told me that story as an adult, um, she told it as like it, it was one of the hardest days of her life and you can imagine why and she had a lot of hard days to compare um, but um, you know for her the there was so much about that life that had that was so specific to kind of what she kind of felt as her assignment in the world as a mother and um, you know the what you pick up on I think about the the tensions there one is that as I said, she was a teenager when she got pregnant with me. And, um, and so as you might guess, I was not planned. And, um, that meant that while she had an immense love for me, she also rightly sensed that my 
conception altered the course of her life in a way that maybe was not always desirable. <laughs> um, and so that's um, an unfortunate burden for a child to bear and also for a mother to bear. And because of our proximity of age, um, we I sort of came of age together almost more as sisters in some ways, you'll see in the rest of the book. Um, her mother was kind of a second mother to me. She was 34 when she became a grandma to me. Um, and so, and that's a pretty common story in, um, in low income households, um, is grandma's kind of stepping in and with caretaking. But, um, but yeah, I think that, uh, that her story is, is very poignant to me. And it's one that was, she and I have a lot in common as far as, um, uh, I don't know, just sensibilities and, and creative tendencies. And there are a lot of ways in which her life might have looked more like my life if it hadn't, if she had been born um, just 17 years later as I was and been encouraged as a post-Title IX child, female child, to go to college and do the things that I did. Um, just that quickly, um, opportunities changed for women, um, not to mention Roe v. Wade. I won't even get into that. But um, yeah, I, I hope that, that people will see this, this book as in large part a story about women. I think one of the one of the things that we're always trying to do um, from an education perspective is like how, how can we better serve our patients? And in the last few years, there's been an increasing emphasis on socioeconomic uh, factors. Mm. But when you look at who goes to medical school, mm. uh, the most recent data I've come across is over ten years old, and at that time, the majority of people were from households that were in the top twenty percent of U.S. incomes, right? And I think it's a failure on mm. on the part of medical education that mm -hmm. our physician workforce does not represent the population at large mm. because it's. I think it's going to be hard to empathize with something that is entirely foreign to mm -hmm. you. And I feel like we've really fallen down and uh, haven't, haven't addressed that issue yet. And hopefully uh, people can find your book as a way to mm. develop and like gain some insight into something that they haven't experienced. Mm. It's it's just it's one of those things that I was thinking about before uh, before you came to campus, but this really drove home about how how pressing that is, like from an education perspective as we move forward. Yeah, yeah, you're blowing my mind with that because I had not really, you know, I I was talking earlier in our conversation about the the class divide and just like the conversation between a doctor and a patient from where I'm from, but I had not gone so far as to think about. Um, diversifying in many ways, surely, um, racially, ethnically, and gender lines, and, and certainly socioeconomics, um, the medical industry for those reasons. Um, I am often harping about the kind of parallel within my own industry, the news media, uh, and it has some, some um, of the same um, uh, import there, which is, you know, the, the people who are charged with essentially setting the narratives of our country, if they are largely, as they are largely from uh, middle or upper middle class white households and no way reflects the country. Um, and it, and <clears throat> even if they're well-intentioned, as no doubt the majority of doctors from that top 20% are, um, they will have blind spots for their, um, the, the limitations of their experience as anyone would, which is why we need people from all sorts of backgrounds to um, have the privilege and power of, um, of being doctors, certainly. Well, a great point. And so the other facet of that too is um, you can come from a variety of different backgrounds, but once you get here, you're, kind, you're in an elite institution surrounded mm -hmm. by 
a lot of people with privilege, um, money, and just intelligence. And so I think it's, it can be very dangerous, no matter where you come from, to be in an environment like that, that can, was mm. undoubtedly going to change who you are. Mm. Um, and you learn to speak a whole other language. You learn medical English. You know, we talked about country English and fancy yeah. English, Well, we get, you know, a third language here. Yeah. Um, and so it's just another thing, I guess, to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's one that I try to stay vigilant about. And I think of myself as, um, I, I tell people I hold like a like dual class citizenship. And so that's who I, I live in Kansas. I have both feet planted on the ground there. I tend my garden. I hang out with the same crazy characters you read about in Heartland. <laughs> and, um, and I also, most of my professional colleagues are in New York City and I'm there fairly regularly. And, um, and so I just, I try to think about um, you know, I think the way that we talk about class in this country, we even have like a visual metaphor of a ladder that we use. And the idea is like to climb the ladder. Mm-hmm. And that would suggest that you're like from one space and then you get out or leave it to a better, higher one or whatever. And I, I try to think of um, the way that I navigate my life as more like holding simultaneous truths or experiences. And so it's not as though I left one place to enter another. And I think that the by making that slight shift conceptually maybe gives us a better chance at staying true to where we come from even as we are harnessing all the gifts and privileges of of another place i think really importantly too when you talk about like the ladder of society it kind of implies that you can blame people for not climbing it Mm, oh my god well said Mm -hmm. so it's obviously it's really easy for policymakers to blame people who have who are in that situation and maybe mm-hmm. in, in and you can obviously see their side of it but mm-hmm. it's just a really short-sighted way of looking at it i would say indeed agreed it's it's interesting to me that I, it as you were making that point rob i was thinking like the once again the idea of agency mm-hmm. comes into your head like if you haven't been put in a position to have the access and the agency to make that choice, Mm -hmm. then you're always kind of choosing from the lot that's cast for you. And it's, it's a rare person that, that can make that much of a jump. Mm. Um, It's getting harder and harder. The the ladder is harder and harder to climb. And yes, for folks that have been fortunate enough to rise the ladder, it's much harder to fall down the rungs of the ladder than to ascend it. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. And, and the, and the thing that's, the thing that I think about in terms of that is a professional graduate program like medical school or law school or even, you know, for me getting a, an MFA, you're enculturated into a new society. You're mm-hmm. taught the social mores and ex- expectations of that new society. Like as much as you're here to learn the nuts and bolts of anatomy, et cetera, et cetera, you're also here to learn how to be a doctor in in thought and deed mm. you know you're 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 being enculturated into into a new into a new status and i think for some people especially those who who may have come from a lower income background at some point in their in in their family they see this as like ascending that ladder and a lot of people just, a lot of people think and now i can leave it behind Mm-hmm. You know, because mm-hmm. I've I've made my way out. You graduated, and yeah, and and I think Sarah, you make a really good point about trying to encourage the idea 
that you can remain uh, you can remain both a person of the place that you came from while still being something that's different, greater, other mm-hmm. than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this reminds me of, um, you know, I find that being a fellow Midwesterner talking to folks in Iowa, I, um, I found this curious aspect of um, ur- specifically like urban coastal culture where um, the people who use the most contemptuous terms for the middle of the country, which is, which is sort of a thing that happens, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> um, but often or like more often than you would think, are themselves from the center of the country. And so I think that, you know, for, I find that my good friends in New York City who like grew up there are just more like genuinely kind of fascinated by where I'm from. And yeah, maybe they might have some kooky ideas about who's there, what it looks like, but they're, but it's not a contemptuous regard. Um, but it's like the people who who fancy themselves as like having gotten out of a place that they hated in high school and now they need to like shut close their heart to it forever somehow um, are the ones that say the nastiest things about the place that I feel like is my home. Right. And there's a lot to, as you point out in the book, there's a lot of things that people might, might be actually escaping, Mm, you know, in terms of domestic violence or poverty or, you know, any number of those kinds of situations. And if they, if those things were, I guess, very difficult for them, then it might be right. a, a, a way to sort of push back and say, that's not my life anymore. Yeah, yeah. Because of course, like domestic violence and poverty and all mm-hmm. the vast majority of cycles that I describe in my book also exist in urban and coastal places. Um, but that's a good point that if we're, we're associating a region with uh, the less desirable then when someone goes to the place that they have fancied their personal promised land within the context of American capitalism or whatever, then there is somehow this mental trick where they're conflating the problems of their life with the place or something. Right. Right. Mm, makes sense. Yeah. In your discussions with people, especially in urban areas, have you kind of found that people, those individuals sort of see what you're talking about and think, you know what, these, this city's got more than its fair share of problems. And, mm. I guess what I'm asking is, have you noticed or seen any incidences of people in urban areas sort of th- saying, oh, that's sad, but like, it's not so much my problem. The city's got problems too, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I don't, maybe it's just kind of like the sort of self-selecting nature of who would end up reading my stuff. But what I more often hear from urban people is like, I grew up on the Bronx, in the Bronx, and yet like, my grandpa is the same as your grandpa or like they see they have like their urban parallel of what i describe as a rural experience and they connect to it in some kind of universal way now that's the people who are coming to my writing like i said it's probably a self-selecting group who would then be you know open in that way but um in just in the broader culture not in direct response to my work but I, i i certainly see um a um a very negative attitude toward rural America. And I, and I think that has to do partly with the way that we talk about politics right now. Um, it's this very reductive framework as though rural America is all the bad. Well, first it's, it's a whitewashing of that part of the country, which by the way is like racially and ethnically diverse and always has been. Um, but there's this idea is like, all the white racists are in the country yeah. and all the good liberals are in the city or something. And it's That's like, true. that is, 
actually not at all correct. And in fact, are, um, you know, like there are examples every day of those same insidious aspects of our society in urban powerful centers. I mean, they're the ones that wield those um, things like racism with the most power. And so, um, I don't know, I, f I find it to be a kind of convenient like scapegoating of people who don't have a voice to say, um, you know, like maybe we have some culpability in this, but we're not like the only freaking problem. And by pointing the, um, yeah. always pointing to them as the, the root of all evil is, um, diverts attention from the people who hold true power in the country, I think. Hmm. Well, it, it, it was in, it's been interesting to me to watch the political rhetoric uh, change. Uh, our current president had a, had a nice campaign phrase that he used that uh, could mean any number of things in mm -hmm. any place in the country. Mm -hmm. you, know, you say, make America great again, and it means something different to every place mm -hmm. where you deploy that language. Yeah. And I think a lot of a lot of people are hurting in a lot of different places, and they're looking for reasons or scapegoats for mm -hmm. why they're hurting. Right. And they're that's been the so having lived in West Virginia, which was a predominantly de democratic state for mm -hmm. the better part of the last half of the twentieth century, yeah. watching them go to the Republican side in two thousand four. Uh, or 2000, well, 2000 and 2004, both was really interesting to me because it was, it was the rhetoric of the other mm -hmm. that yes. they really responded to, uh, you know, that, and that, that narrative has been built for the past 20 years to give people something else to, to latch onto as opposed to recognize the commonality that they have with anyone in any area who might have this, who might be affected by the same kinds of circumstances. Right. You know, it's a, it, it's a scarcity of resources mm -hmm. discussion. And uh, it's just really frustrating to me to watch people and a, and a place that I knew as mm -hmm. wanting to, you help help their neighbor and be part of a, a larger community to just becoming bitter mm -hmm. about things and and not recognize that that bitterness doesn't necessarily come from them it you know right it's being delivered in some ways by the rhetoric of our of our time mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um, and among that bitter lot the loudest and i would say specifically often most racist and misogynistic among them are the ones who get the microphone and that is to some extent the fault of my own industry and the way that it that gets ratings but i just mm -hmm. want to point out that like in places like west virginia um kansas anywhere that we now consider a red state regardless of its political history in um the vast majority of states that went for Trump, like about 40% of voters voted for Hillary Clinton. And so there is, I think the electoral college means that we like, we do have to talk about things in these terms because that's how the elections get decided. And yet I know that there are still people in your West Virginia who are, who, who have not swung in that direction. You know what I mean? Most definitely. Yes. 
So uh, the part of the state I grew up in is uh, currently represented by uh, Steve King, who uh, makes the rounds on a lot of uh, uh, news outlets. And I have found myself very defensive of home when people paint that entire corner of the state broadly as racist and backwards because it's not there. There are plenty of good and wonderful people there. And there's, and there's good people that vote in ways that I find personally frustrating. But I think a lot of times it's from them, from their perspective, it comes from a sense of frustration um, Mm -hmm. with how they perceive things to be working, whether that's accurate or not. Um, And then also just, they people sense when they're othered mm-hmm. and people sense when they're not welcome and i f- i feel like until we account for that we're not going to go anywhere yeah. at least positively yeah absolutely that's why i'm very heartened right now by um you know any um politician who is taking a tact of like i will go to all every county in this state or uh, um or, you know, at the broader level, I would think a party should have a, what they would call a 50 state strategy, like rather than saying like, okay, the efficiencies of going to this place and then this other place we're gonna leave for dead because they're not with us anyway. Mm-hmm. Like that's a very dangerous way to start like um, like parsing what parts of the country matter and what don't and then the judgments mm-hmm. inherent in that. And um, because all of those places are complicated and um, diverse in their own ways and um, and I think that um, there has been what you're talking about has kind of like come to such a head that the only way, like you say, that we're going to move forward is if the conversation is inclusive and reverent to the fact that like people make decisions within the contexts of their lives that um, sometimes um, befuddle someone on the other side of the aisle but yet if he or she were born into the exact same life experience with the same information sources and the same um, experiences at foot, like maybe they wouldn't have done so different. It's yeah. complicated. In yeah. some in some ways it kind of reminds me of like when we when we see patients and it's like, why don't you quit smoking or right. why don't you control your diabetes yeah. better? But we just we're not in their right. in their shoes, so we're not yes. gonna get it. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Uh I just to sort of turn around now and maybe lead us toward the end of the podcast. I want to. I want to read the last paragraph of the chapter that that we read, um, and then kind of maybe talk about that a little. So, we might have been poor. We might have been born poor, and we might have been born female. Two strikes against a body in the world. Mom might have looked like something that men wanted to possess, and I might have been an unwanted child. One more strike against each of us navigating an already perilous life, but mom knew that she wasn't trash and she knew her daughter wasn't either. And you talked a little bit about uh, an anecdote about listening to a modern country song Mm -hmm. uh, that was sort of both glorifying and denigrating uh, people of people of that uh, rural status. Mm -hmm. Uh, how do you? I guess my question is how how do you feel that that plays into this overall conversation? Mm-hmm. Well, the reason that that passage ends a chapter that is chapter two called "The Body of a Poor Girl" is entirely about the way that class intersects with with um, personal wellness, health, the body, um, and with a, a heavy dose of of gender awareness along the way. Um, the reason that that passage ends a chapter on those themes is that. 
um, you know, as my my dad knows from um, almost dying working a side job where a billion dollar corporation couldn't afford safer um, work equipment for him, as my um, mother knows having been in myriad you know physically dangerous situations as a, a vulnerable woman in a rural area um, uh, and devalued by employers in those places. Um, you you can feel if you're born into a particular class and culture of work like your your own body is dispensable to society and um and that's um not a stretch i mean i i think that would be an accurate statement if we just look at society as a whole and what we have and haven't invested in and where we put our money and um uh yeah there are there are millions of people in this country who's who's whose physical body and the the labor that it performs as essentially a machine is where we place find its value in society um, and uh, whether it whether that body is healthy and um, whether that person enjoys his or her life is sort of inconsequential to the way that we have structured things and so um, this is where comes in a term that I grew up hearing white trash and I think that there are, of course, you know, I consider that a slur and um, hate speech, essentially, that we might not often um, correlate with, you know, uh, what is also a, a, a racial privilege. Um, but that term, you know, it, it stuck with me in considering the ways that the, the family that I love um, had their actual bodies on the line in such a way as like, oh, like, um, trash is something we throw away and it's garbage and it disturbs me that now in our vernacular we have sort of broadened that on social media you'll people say you know not just white trash but they'll say an idea is trash or that person's trash they're canceled they're trash and I think it's a very dangerous way to talk about human beings um, whether we agree with them or not um, the the our ability to combat those sorts of impulses, I think, is like no less than the difference between a functioning democracy and a, a um, much less hospitable society that we seem to be um, heading toward. Unfortunately, yeah, I think that's a good place for us to to wrap up. I want to thank first Sarah Marsh for being here. Thank you. This was great. Please uh, go to whatever outlet you prefer and find her book Heartland and, and give it a read. Uh, it's been fantastic so far for, for us, I know. I want to thank Chris and Tenome, Rob, Gabe. Thanks thank for the you great guys. questions. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Yeah, so if you want to find the Shortcoat Podcast, you can go to theshortcoat.com. You can find us on your podcast outlet of choice. You can find us just about anywhere if your heart is set on it and we hope it is so this show is made possible by a generous donation from the carver college of medicine student government and ongoing support from the writing and humanities program our executive producer is me uh our opening music is by dr vox and our closing music is by catmosphere we'll be back in one week 